Hey everyone, you're listening to Beyond Recognition, an all-about creativity podcast that keeps on exploring the depths of creating process from some of the world's most outstanding artists. I'm your host and the phonetical freak, Dan. As some of my friends already know, I recently got divorced, which is the reason why this podcast is coming out with a delay. It took quite some time to put myself together through this entire situation, and of course, reflection was a big part of that process, as well as the help of my friends. Thank you guys for all your support. So, at this point of my life, I was summing up these few years and uh, got to the point when I started really releasing to some of the releases that came out in 2023 which is the direct connection with our guest today. So, Heart Cold Fire, the newest release of Therapy, was definitely one of the most enjoyable experiences for me. But also, I couldn't but mention Jaw, the newest project featuring a good number of great musicians that released their debut Super Class LP. It got me back to the point when I discovered Therapy and got amazed with all these tendencies the band has been pushing, coming from the underground, and they still do. So our guest today is Andy Kearns, guitarist, vocalist, composer, the founding member of Therapy and Jaw. This year, one of the most well-known records of Therapy Trouble Gum celebrates 30 years anniversary. The band is getting ready for a tour. They always tour, always incredible life. So I got the chance to talk to Andy about lyrics and pessimism, starting jaw, sound experiments, the success of therapy, we discuss life and touring experiences, of course. All of the episodes are available at Beyond Recognition Patreon page in advance. Subscribe at patreon.com slash beyondrecognition to get exclusive content, advanced episodes, and different bonuses for our subscribers. Right now, tune in and listen to my conversation with Andy Kearns. Being where you are right now, passing through the decades of experience of being independent artist, working with independent labels, signing deal with the major label, and coming through where you are right now, you understand that the more people are involved in the process, the more difficult it becomes. And you understand that simply by knowing how much you need to do you know to get on tour pl- to play and the entire fragility of the process so getting back to working with independent labels and with martial records right now how does it make you feel well it's it's okay for us because we had a very good education in punk rock in ireland we started out where we put on our own concerts we released our own records we had interviews with fanzines that were run by friends. Uh, we had put on gigs with other people. So um, we didn't sign our first major label deal until we had been going as a band for three years. So then whenever we lost the major label deal, it wasn't a catastrophe for, for, catastrophe for us, really, because we've always been good with managing money because we know that the most important thing is to make sure that we can run the band and run all our expenses um to get the the most important things obviously the music but then you need to be able to get that music out to people and also we didn't have our pride wasn't hurt because we were no longer on a major because we came from a a punk background we knew that it wouldn't last forever the major label thing because we always knew we weren't going to be the size of you two or guns and roses so that made it a lot easier to deal with uh, we were very good at organizing concerts, at downsizing, at starting again from the beginning. I think the problem some bands have is when they're on a major label, they get used to the rock and roll lifestyle. And whenever they get dropped from a major, I, half half of them miss the money that they would get from a major label and the other half feel a sense of shame that someone has rejected them. Uh, I think with therapy, we had neither of those things. We just said, okay. Uh, we've, we're now, we've had an indie label years. We've been on a major. We're now back to being an indie band. That's okay. Let's deal with this. I often think about people in sport 
which is mm -hmm. a very good uh, trajectory to connect with what you just said. Like mm -hmm. if you were thinking about like figure skaters who mm -hmm. dedicate themselves to extensive trainings and eventually mm -hmm. they reach out the age where they are considered being old, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. Some of yeah. them even do in their 20s. No mm. matter if you think of yourself that you are old or no, versus mm. musicians, especially these days, because you understand there are a very few artists who can get the luxury of uh, taking what they've done in past and still not lose the attention of the fans while, you know, some of other artists, they need to tour constantly. Yeah, I think uh, that's a good that's a good point. Um, also, I think with with uh, the sport analogy, a lot of people um, know that they they don't plan in advance, so they think well, they're young, and they, when you're young, you think life will go on forever, and then some people are taken by surprise. Not everybody is Lionel Messi, you know. Not everyone can be the greatest footballer of all time, and it's about man uh, managing expectations. And I think with therapy, I know that when we were a four-piece with Martin McCarrick and with Graham Hopkins in the band, they joined the band after the band had been successful and we were already on a major. And whenever we lost to deal with the major, they certainly found it a lot more difficult to deal with than myself and Michael, the original member, because they thought they were joining a band that was a, a well-known major label band that was going to go on and become famous and they would be part of that. But when that didn't quite happen, they got quite resentful towards me and Michael um, because I think they thought they were joining a band that would make them more famous than they already were. But with us, we just think as long as we can make music, as long as we can put on concerts, we have a good plan to keep the band existing, to make sure that we get out and tour when we can and to keep putting records out. Marshall Records is a really good home for that because they... For a start, they're realistic in their aims. They give us a certain amount of money to do what we need, but they don't throw money at us and expect us to be the new Foo Fighters. You know, they've they've got a certain amount of money, and they know they're they're also clever because they know that we've got they signed a band that have already got a fan base across the world. So they're not it's not a young band that they're going to have to try and break. We already have a certain amount of fans across the world. So Marshall know that when they release a therapy record, regardless of if it's a good therapy record or a bad one, there is a certain amount of people will buy it because of the fan base. But thankfully, the records we made for them have been good ones so far. But so it's, it kind of works both ways there, getting a band with a bit of experience and an existing fan base, which helps get the name of Marshall Records out to the world. And we're also getting uh, people that are very, very understanding of what we want to do as a band. Was it, I can't but notice, it's still you are one of the most touring bands I personally know. Well, the reason why Therapy tours so much is, is two reasons. Um, we like doing it, but also because uh, this isn't the 90s, so we can't rely on um, lots and lots of record sales and, and things like that to, to make money. So whenever we go out on tour, we tour, we tour modestly. We bring... Uh, a tour van, not a tour bus. We bring a small road crew that we've known for quite a few years and we pay them fairly and they are very hardworking. And then when we go on tour, we make money. So, you know, I know bands that are probably not as popular as therapy that go on tour, but they want to look like rock stars. So they'll get a tour bus. Now a tour bus is 2,500 pounds a day. Mm -hmm. A small van is about 100 pounds a day. So, you know, if you do a concert and you're getting paid so many thousand pounds for it and you're spending a quarter of that money on the tour bus, then more money on wages for the driver. When you come home, you're not going to have enough money to A, pay for your rehearsal space, pay for uh, a place where you can leave your equipment and pay for your road crew and flights. So we have a very good way. And it's because we're all punk rockers. We kind of go, okay, well, if we do things this way, we can afford to pay all these people and exist as a band and make, and keep on going. So um, that because we do like touring, and Dan, not everybody that I know that's a musician likes touring. I mean, Fife Ewing, an amazing drummer, was in the band with Therapy from the beginning. Great drummer. He hated touring. He really hated it. He didn't like it. He never liked to tour. When we went on tour, it was always, you could tell he was unhappy. I know people in very famous bands that are friends of mine, but I won't embarrass them by naming them, that 
don't like the tour because they say they like being in the studio making records. They like being in their rehearsal space with their computer writing ideas. But they, whenever their management says to them, we have to go on tour, they dread that day. But we're lucky. We like going on tour. We like meeting people. We like playing shows. Being on stage is something that myself and Michael and Neil Cooper have always enjoyed doing. So it's not a, uh, it's not a difficult thing for us. And also, you know, I think there's uh, an agent factor involved. Like if if you became a musician and, you know, started playing in the 80s, you managed to get through this, let's say, uh, a number of connections through like all the clubs in the UK, which is something like I've spoken to Budgie like around like yeah. four or five years ago. And he told me a wonderful thing that he's... His sort of his place of existing or his place of living are clubs, theaters, and so on. And if you know, like his history coming from Liverpool, getting through all these underground underground clubs, and you know until he moved to London in '79, like you understand, like that's the history. And people who used to book those shows, like they later on established a well-known record label. Just you know, mm -hmm. if you would take like Warp for example. Yes, yeah, good idea. Yeah. That's very true, Dan, and same with therapy. We have, we're very lucky in that we were around at a time when we it was easier for bands, I think, to get concerts. Now, I, I look at young bands now. I've recently done a project with uh, some other musicians called Jaw. It was an industrial noise project. Now, those guys are a lot younger than me, and those guys are very talented, but they've all got two or three jobs. Uh, you know, it's it's hard for them. I, I'm a professional musician. This is being a musician is what I do, and we've managed to make a living out of it. You know, between us, our management, um, who's who are good friends of ours, we've managed to make this what all we all we need to do for a living. But the guys in Jaw, they all have three or four different things on the go because they just by that by being in the bands that they're in and touring, they, they can't make enough money. Mm -hmm. uh, Adam, the drummer of Jaw, is a session drummer. And, you know, he makes all his money by playing with these wonderful bands like Pulp and Square Pusher and Goldie. Um, and uh, Wayne Adams, the guy that's the main guy behind the project, he runs a studio, so his main gig is a producer. But, you know, to try and get music off the ground just from bands, it's really difficult these days. If you were a young person trying to get a string of, say, 20 gigs in the UK together for a tour, it's really difficult. You know, if, if back in our day, we would... Therapy would say, well, we know a couple of punk guys in Dublin, so we'd phone them, and we know a couple of punk guys in Birmingham. And we would, between phone calls, this is before mobile phones or internet, we would have maybe, say, 10 gigs, and we'd do that. And when we were at one of the gigs, we'd meet some guy maybe from Scotland that would go, have you guys ever played in, in Glasgow? Mm. And we want to. And then that way, as you said earlier, uh, some of those people that did those gigs for us back in 1990, 91, are now working for record labels, they're now working for uh, clubs, rock clubs and things like that, the people that stayed in the business. And it works like that. So we're lucky to have built this little structure. And at the same, to a certain extent, in parts of Europe and, you know, uh, places like that. When you have your comfort zone, meaning a band with some people you've been working for several decades right now, which is obviously the current lineup of therapy, mm -hmm. How do you feel getting into the new environment, meaning your new, your recent project, Joe? Well, that that was good because it was um, it didn't take up too much of my time initially, and that I'm in a place at the minute where my family is older than Michael and Neil, so they both have two very young children, and anyone that has children knows that very young children it, you have to be there a lot more. My my son has grown up. He has a job. He lives outside of home. So, you know, I've got a lot more time to do things on my hands. Uh, whenever the job project came in, it was a time in therapy. We weren't doing anything for a month. And all I did was go and visit Wayne in the studio and, and send some emails back and forward. But I think it's good. I mean, Michael does some stuff with his next door neighbor, uh, has a project called Honge mm -hmm. uh, that he runs and Michael uh, helps out with that and I know that Neil has helped out with the band Benefits from the UK drumming with them but I, th I think it's really important I mean it, none of it affects therapy and in fact it's really good for therapy because a lot of people that would listen to Jaw wouldn't listen to therapy or if they did maybe they would only listen to early therapy records that are a bit more industrial 
so that's good. They they kind of some people that have um, got into jaw have actually got back into therapy again. And I know with something like benefits, there are a, a bunch of young people. People have seen Neil Drummond and Gunny's a fantastic drummer. He's a band called Therapy, and they go, "Oh God, I'll have to check them out." And then they will start coming to our shows. So it's really, really good for everybody, and and also that works the other way around. Therapy fans start buying Jaw Benefits records too. I I'm thinking about the fact that it's probably a bit easier when your creativity is more or less associated with something and extreme to a degree, but difficult for somebody who is initially signed to electronic record label like let's say Warp, mm. being a fan of black metal and get mm. and get into that side of things. Isn't it, according to your opinion? In my opinion, you know, it, it was a very organic transition for you mm -hmm. to do things you've been doing with Jaw. Oh, no, that's exactly right. I mean, a lot of the, whenever I met the Jaw guys, because I'd never met them before, whenever I first met them, um, they had a lot of the same influences as early therapy. So, you know, they, they are a lot younger, but they were talking about Godflesh and Fudge Tunnel and um, Chrome and bands like that mm -hmm. uh, but you know they were younger guys so they didn't hear those guys first time around that was just something they get into later but i was old enough to have been around and got into those guys first time yeah so i mean i know what you mean if we suddenly made a an ambient record or a dream pop record i think people would be a bit more suspicious mm -hmm. but i think with something like jaw benefits and, and haunch it's got enough characteristics that people will think oh yeah okay well that's cool yeah And how do you manage to keep the balance between yourself being a wonderful lyricist and, you know, and, and a romantic, in my opinion, and, you know, a fan of nice rock, especially taking into account that with this project you're, get, you're gravitating to, you know, to more to nice and, you know, to expressive side of things versus, you know, being a lyricist? Well, with something like John, The pressure was off because I didn't have to write the lyrics. We, uh, the lyrics were co-written with Wayne, and we we did something which I've never done before. We wrote the lyrics from scratch. So he would say, "Okay, I've got an idea for this title. I've watched a movie, um, and the title is called Bring Home the Mother Load, Barry. This is what the song's about." And he would say the first line, maybe the first two lines, and then I would come up with something. And it was all done very quickly. So it didn't come from a great deal of personal experience. It came from wordplay with Wayne, you know, and it was it was cool. It was a really good way to write it. Whenever I write with therapy, it comes from a personal place, and that is can sometimes be quite difficult to write. But what was good about doing this thing with Wayne is it, it made me realize that I don't always have to put myself under so much pressure. So maybe for the next therapy album, I could try and give myself a bit of a break when it comes to writing lyrics so that it doesn't have to be so heavily thought through. It can be a lot more relaxed and a lot more fun. But still, like, no no matter what you are doing, I think there's always been this incredible sense of melodics included in your songwriting. Even if mm. we would take some of the heaviest songs of yours, like Disgraceland mm. or Cheese mm. Grider, Like, when I listen to these songs, I can easily imagine them played in an acoustic version, which mm. is something you've already done with therapy and on your own. Do you think there is a certain sense of melody and maybe, you know, melodicness you are putting in your songwriting that makes these songs so appealing to your listener? Or, you know, there is something else that probably comes from, like, your personal experience or methods of you know writing well i think it's it's a bit of both really i think the reason why there's so much mel melody and uh memorable lyric and memorable melodies in my writing is simply for the fact when i learned to play guitar uh, a lot of friends of mine learned to play guitar at the same time and friends of mine that were in metal or into punk wanted to play like Iron Maiden, ACDC, and they would spend hours learning the guitar solos. I was taught, my, I was fans of Buzzcocks, Undertones, Ramones, um, and a friend of mine, when I was learning to play guitar, showed me some chords, and he said, if you use these chords, you can work out these songs. So I didn't spend all my time from the age of 13 or 14 trying to play solos like um, the Michael Schenker group or Iron Maiden or ACDC or anything like that. I tried writing songs like the Buzzcocks. So from a very, very early age, I would play just chords and sing along. 
And then later on, I discovered how to play riffs and how to play lead guitar and bits like that. But I think the first thing I tried to do is whenever I learned how to play guitar, was use it as a method to write melody. Whereas a lot of my friends just wanted to be able to be the first guy to be able to play, I don't know, uh, Eruption by Van Halen. <laughs> so it was, you know, so like, you know, I, I, would, I would meet friends of mine, they'd be able to play the Eruption solo and would say, what have you learned? And I've gone, well, I've written this song. So I always thought that was a bit more, um, a bit more beneficial to me. And in fact, years ago, when we did the album Crooked Timber with Andy Gill, who, who was a big influence on me as a guitar player growing up, we had this same discussion. And Andy said a really good thing to me. He said, to be honest, I, I agree. He said, I, I play chords and I don't know what the name of the chords are. He said, I've taught them myself, but I knew that when I would write them, I'd be able to get John to sing with them. So I never thought about, I never thought about guitar magazines talking about me being a great guitarist. I thought this will help serve the song. And I, I was saying to him that I was the same thing. And he said it was because of punk with him, punk rock and Dr. Feelgood and people like that taught him that once you have a basic grasp of a guitar, you can start writing songs. You don't have to be Angus Young or Van Halen to start writing songs. All you need is a few chords and, and the desire to write a melody. When I interviewed just in person, We've spoken a lot about the change from punk rock to post-punk and how the ethic level obviously being oversought to a degree and the difference between values of the 70s and the 80s. And being a person who Sabrina took place in the 70s, you got the chance to see evolution of the artists like, you know, the Boscocks, the Smiths and, you know, something as radical as Flipper and Black Flag. So mm -hmm. what impression did you get discovering the richness and the sound and form sometimes coming from the exact same place, which also inspired mm -hmm. you, you know, simply by taking, you know, Gang of Four, Boscocks, and, mm -hmm. you know, maybe once again, the Banshees? Well, that, that was, um, with me, it was, the songs always came first. So whenever I started writing songs, but then whenever I would listen to people like Joy Division, The Banshees, Killing Joke Gang of Four, I would start maybe trying to play my guitar a bit like them. And then because I'd, I'd grown up playing really simple chords and singing over them, I found it easy to find melodies over the chords. So whenever therapy started, that meant that I didn't have to just play nice, pretty chords. I'd already had some. What post-punk taught me was that it was possible to write really amazing melodies over quite dark guitar guitar parts. So that was almost like it was an education for me listening to all those post-punk records. Uh, when it was spoken for the last time you mentioned that you are at the point of your career when you develop your ideas very easy and organically. But, mm -hmm. you know, when there is this sense of experiment, which is, you know, very characteristic for post-punk, you know, specifically, mm -hmm. you know, I keep on speaking to every guest on this podcast about Keith Levine, who was a dear mm -hmm. friend of mine. But, like, if you think about, like, his contribution, it's really incredible. I think he brought this sense of dangerous experiments that, you know, was really important for post-punk. So... Mm -hmm. What gives you an an understanding that you know think these things would work when you try to unite different elements in your work? Because you know sometimes you come up with something brilliant but so different, and you know the fact that these things get united in the song structure it makes me amazed with like what you are doing. Well, I think Keith Levine's a good point because I think I Keith Levine. To me, as a post-punk fan, was the first time I heard post-punk guitar where I thought this is truly psychedelic. It was visceral and psychedelic guitar, especially on the Metal Box album, because all of a sudden, rather than just listening to John Lydon and, and the, the bass and the, the dub beats are great, you could I think you could find yourself with that record just listening to the guitar, and it, it would take you on a journey of its own. And the way he plays things, when you try as a guitar player, trying to work out how he plays them, it's really, it's it's so effortless for him to play them that way. But as somebody that grew up on just standard punk rock guitar chords, it's a strange, strange way to play guitar. But what's good about Keith Levine is it's exciting. And I think a lot of the things that he taught me are probably just, I heard that metal box when I was 14 years of age, you know, and, and I was beginning to play guitar. 
So those things that I don't even think about, they're naturally in my my guitar playing DNA. And to this day, you know, he's one of the people, if I still put on any record that Keith Levine's been involved in, I still go high on earth, high on earth that he think of that pattern, those notes, the way he times them, the guitar sound he has. And if I don't know if I told you a few years ago when we played in Cardiff and Wheels, Keith turned up and we were playing with a band called The Membranes and he joined them on stage and played a song with them. And it was a Membranes song, actually, not, not one of his. And uh, we were in the dressing room and we said, well, we wonder when Keith's on. And literally, just I knew from the first two notes he played that it was Keith Levine because we didn't know whereabouts in the membrane set. And I went, I went out onto the balcony of the concert at home and watched him play. But I knew from hearing the first two notes that Keith Levine enjoyed them on stage. It's incredible. Yeah. He got really incredible tone. I, you know, I, I recall like all these, you know, phone calls we got with him where you know while still like we, we were talking about something and he was playing like all the time like he was really full of ideas and even if what even if it was more to like to sort of a hard rock side of things because he was a big fan of uh bands like stone temple pilots surprisingly yeah. Yeah. like you could still tell that you know that's him even if, even if, once again, if it, if it got to that side of things. I can see that there was Stone Temple Pilots because I remember being on tour in America with Therapy and Stone Temple Pilots come out and all the press said they were just a poor man's Pearl Jam. They were a terrible band, <laughs> but I used to like them. And I mentioned, uh, I was talking to Neil Cooper in Therapy a few weeks ago about Stone Temple Pilots thing and he would go, oh God, they were terrible. Went, oh no, I love Stone Temple Pilots. He said, if you listen to some of the chords they use in tracks like Plush or the rhythm of a track like Vaseline, it's not Pearl Jam. It's, they had something, I think, and I can understand where Keith Devine as a guitar player would listen to them and go, especially a track like Plush, would go, mm -hmm. that's, that's actually fantastic because it's not just big distorted gnarly chords. It's almost like a beautiful 70s glam rock track, uh, but with a strange exotic chord shapes in it getting to you know hard cold fire because obviously i've been listening to this record over the course of the last two weeks mm. as far as i know that there was a lot of lyrical working between you and michael isn't it um none of the none of the lyrics between me and michael um it was mm. music some of the songs we, yeah, we wrote that was uh, we've started this in the last few years because I used to write most of the music. I still write all the lyrics and all the melodies. But um, a few years ago, Michael started sending me things on his you know, by, by, by email and asking me what I thought. And this, the ideas are really good. And I think Michael spends a lot of time. He's got a small area out the back of his house with a recording set up. So it's really handy. So, you know, if we're writing material, he'll go, listen, here's five ideas. If you can get anything out of these ideas. And I, we're just honest with each other. And for this album, he sent me Poundland of Hope and Glory, the main guitar riff. He sent me the guitar riff of Two Wounded Animals. Mm -hmm. um, and they were like, I, I, well, especially Two Wounded Animals, when I first heard it, I thought this is magnificent. So I took it and I added the chorus and we played it together. But it's the same with Neil Cooper, the, the track Woe, the mm -hmm. second track on the album. <laughs> Neil can't play guitar, but he's got a little synthesizer. So he sent me a synthesizer lying going, eh, 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 and said, I don't know if you can play this on guitar, Andy, but I've got an idea for a riff. So I, I downloaded it and I listened to it, and I've got a little electro harmonics pog, which makes it kind of almost like a synth-like sound. So I listened to the notes. I worked out what notes he was playing, and I played along with it. And then I sent it to Michael and then said, listen, this is Neil's idea, but I've, I've transposed it to the guitar. What do you guys reckon of this? And then we went from there and that was the track. So it's, yeah, we, we've always kind of done stuff like that. But what's happened in the past is maybe we've got into doing an album. We've had maybe 15 songs and we need 10. And occasionally the tracks that those guys have written haven't made it to the album because we maybe haven't finished them properly or they're not as strong. But in uh, the last couple of records, they've begun to contribute. And it's, it's great. I like it because it takes a lot of the pressure off me. <laughs> um, I still have to do the melodies and the lyrics, but um, I like it. Especially, I mean, I wouldn't, none of us, I mean, at the same time, you know, if I bring in a terrible, if I bring in a, a piece of music to those guys and they don't like it, 
you know, it's not the kind of band where they have to do it. If they don't like a song I've written, they'll go, no, nah, that's not really for us. And I'll go, that's okay. You know, because all three of us have to like something before we move ahead with it. Sure, but even even still, like if we, if we would think about it, because it's it's really like the, the longest you know lineup of therapy right now, and probably the most actual question would be what what pushed this transition to like to more sort of you know collective involvement of uh, each all of you you know getting ideas and developing them together. I think it's it's a mixture of organic uh, behavior and also the fact that. In all the years we've been together, it's hard to believe, but we haven't really had many arguments. Mm-hmm. Uh, we There's something in the three of us that has got a lot of respect for each other. Whenever Fife was in the band, he was a great guy and a great drummer, but we used to fight all the time, and that didn't last very long. And then whenever Neil and Martin were in the band, we touched on this earlier, it was difficult because, uh, frankly, I think those guys wanted to be rock stars and, and we just wanted to play the band and that made it difficult as well because it was a very political thing. But when Neil joined the band, he's been in a lot of bands himself. He's some guy that we knew for a long time ago. We respect him as a musician. And the three of us have got this kind of bullshit-free zone. So like, if we don't let anyone get away with behavior that would piss the other guy off. And that's the thing now where I think they feel confident that they can send ideas to me without me going, I write the songs. And I also, I'm not, um, I'm not precious about who writes therapy songs. You know, I mean, the, the only reason that I write the, the lyrics and the melodies um, is because I'm the only one that'll do that. You know, to this day, I've never been given any lyrics or melodies by Michael or Neil. And if they did, I would certainly listen to them. But uh, regarding writing of riffs and things like that, I'm totally all up for it. How do you usually work on the lyrical aspects of your songs? It can differ. So something like Joy of Hardcore Fire was written simultaneously with the riff. So I had the guitar on my in my room. And I got a melody. And I had a little idea based on the writings of Samuel Beckett about how repetition and boredom can make people quite dull. And I because the, the melody is almost like a child's nursery rhyme, I wrote the song really quickly. It came to me really quickly. But with other stuff, like say, I mentioned Woe or Poundland of Hope and Glory, I'll come up with a melody. So whenever we rehearse it, I'll just be singing da 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 And then I begin to feel under pressure. I think I have to write something, but then it'll just it'll click. Um, so Poundland of Hope and Glory came from watching um, this terrible documentary on about classical music in Britain. Um, and then the song kind of wrote itself. Yeah, so it's, it's one of those two ways. I'll either write something really quickly. So songs like Scream Major, Nowhere, uh, Joy are written together, which is old, old school of guitar, sitting down melody, and then 15-20 minutes later, the, most of the song's written. Or the music will be there for a long time, and it's not until we get the inspiration that we'll finish the lyrics. Quite a lot of your lyrics is existential, and not because you're writing from the first person, but you know you you are asking obvious questions about mm-hmm. life, death, God, reality, mm-hmm. and you know the last aspect is something you've touched previously with such works of yours as you know Nurse or Troublegum. Mm-hmm. So what made you to get back to exploring this? specific problematic or you know seem within the new record i think it's just age it's just you know i think i um i've always been angry and i've always been reactionary but i think as i've gotten older things like the british government have really pissed me off you know and it's not something when therapy it was almost like when therapy were young there's more things to piss us off than the government because everyone hates the government Mm. you know what i mean so It was like, well, everybody else sings about that. You know, we'll, we'll sing about it in our own way. But as you get a lot older, you feel more comfortable. I think, well, I feel a lot more comfortable directing it. Uh, like Poundland of Hope and Glory is a mm-hmm. good example of the album. And that just comes with age, I think. You know, it's, you know, we have been doing this for well over 30 years now. Um, and it's what feels natural. I think that has become something. And on the last record as well, on Cleave, We had things like Dumb Down and Wreck It Like Beckett, and they were quite similar. They were a lot more direct. 
and uh, how did your view on those things like once again like change after getting older and you know what's more important you know after becoming a parent because obviously it really affects your world view and you start thinking about things you've never been thinking before like you know how my kids would live in this world and so on well i think that's something that Whenever I got, whenever my son got to the age when I could talk to him about these kind of things that did enter my head, because whenever they're young, all you want to do is protect your kids. And then they get to the age where they don't want to hang about with their dad because it's uncool. And then they get to the age where you can actually have a conversation with them because they're, they're young, young men, young adults, young, young women. And that's at the point whenever you realize the things that worry them are different. A lot of them are different than the things that worried us as kids. You know, whenever we were kids growing up in the 70s and 80s, everyone thought that nuclear holocaust would be the end of the world. You know, everyone thought, you know, after Hiroshima um, and the, the Cold War and everything like that, that at some point USA and, and the, the, the West and the East. And then as you get older, that didn't happen. But then you realize the real threat now is what's going on with the planet and global warming and division. And, and all I can do is talk to my son about it and he and listen, you know, so that's the most important thing I think with anyone with children is to listen to. I've been thinking like about what, what, you know, all these things you mentioned right now and thinking that's probably my view on your music from like when I discovered it. It was based, and you know, I think that's true for a lot of people because, you know, in the 90s, you sort of developed a very specific situation similar to the word goss in a very dogmatic mm -hmm. Uh, meaning so uh how, how how does it make you feel right now that really comes you know in hand with the lyrics and you know the problems you've been touching yeah. like you know if even you know if i would think about like the iconic songs of yours yeah. like you know turn gun yeah. you know those things i remember probably more than nowhere or screaming i'm very comfortable with how i'm perceived as a writer now because i think I, I, I'm very comfortable within myself with it. There was a little point, I suppose, in the mid '90s, when the band was very, very popular, and there would be a lot of reviews, and people would always criticize <laughs> about being miserable or being, you know, a, a bit too depressing. But you know, I'm not going to start changing writing songs because that would be just that would be dishonest of me. And then after a while, I get really comfortable with it, and I just think, well. Yeah, there's always a bit of, of what we do is always very Irish, I think. You know, there's a way of being depressed that is Irish mm -hmm. that, is, that runs through Samuel Beckett and Flann O'Brien and William Butler Yeats and, and James Joyce. And I think there's a bit of that in everybody that comes from the island of Ireland uh, in the creative arts. There's a little bit of dark humour. And we've I've learned to, I've felt very comfortable with it. And I think, you know, if someone... If someone doesn't like the lyrics or someone doesn't like the way I look at life, that's okay because I don't like certain songs that look at life in, in other ways too. But, you know, there's there's enough music and enough styles of music out there for everybody. But, yeah, I'm, I'm happy with the the place I hold at the minute in in uh, in myself. And still, like, you have these incredible songs like To Disappear from Hardcore Fire, which still, like, which shows that your worldview isn't radically changes like you st you are still true to yourself which really puts me to towards you know the question are you a pessimist yourself i think i am but i find comfort in pessimism because i think that at a very as a very young child i got very disappointed by life in certain situations i remember when i went to school most kids dread going to school but i was really excited because i thought it'd be an exciting new world and of course all kids are cruel mm. and all and it's good that I mean it's not a very nice time until until you find your place in school so I was disappointed in that and I think it was I learned as a as a way of coping with life if I came to expect the worst then I wouldn't be hurt as much and that was that was that was a young child thinking and I suppose part of that has stayed with me in life so I'm very that has thankfully matured a lot as I've got older. But I'm very, still very pessimistic. I'm a lot more trusting of people, you know, because I've I've had a family. I've got a good relationship with my family. I've got a good relationship with the band and my friends over the years. But I think, as regards how things in life will turn out, 
it works to my advantage if I'm pessimistic. I think that's also was something that you brought to masters because obviously, like when you get signed, and people, I you know, I think not all the people do understand like how important was the fact that you know the band like therapy got to a major label because at once you got you being fans of you know independent record labels like touching go or you know all sorts of you know informal music that was really actual by then that really got reflected in your creativity and you've been sort of pushing that ethics to the masses yeah i mean it is quite incredible when whenever we look back at it that a band that like butthole surfers jesus lizard slint and big black were signed to a major because i think major labels probably thought they'd signed a grunge band when they signed therapy you know they probably thought three-piece band heavy guitars there's a little bit of melody in there but therapy's musical taste was always a lot broader than just a grunge band and that confused quite a lot of people but i think there was um, enough attitude i think a lot of people that identified with therapy that felt the way we do we came from a country where there was division we didn't look like rock stars we didn't feel like rock stars we actually felt as if we were kind of on the outside of life looking in and i think the people that's, that liked therapy so some of the same people that liked the bands like manic street preachers and nine inch nails um they saw a little bit of that of if our, you know whenever they looked at us they saw a little bit of themselves in it and um that gave them comfort probably the same way whenever I was a kid, a lot of those punk post-punk bands give me comfort, like uh, Joy Division, The Cure, um, people like that. You know, they I found things in their music that was comforting. And I think that's maybe what people found in therapy, where, especially in the mid-90s. And do you think that right now, like after the decades, like especially with the heart cold fire, because I've been looking at the reaction and, you know, Every record of yours, like you released over the course of the last 15 years, got really a lot of the positive reviews, mm -hmm. even though like you are doing this, working with independent record labels, so you mm -hmm. don't get this machinery of major mm -hmm. labels that obviously would push you a lot further. Mm -hmm. But still, things are comparable right now, which is... Uh, both amazing for me working in the music business as a PR mm. person and knowing how bad it can be where, you know, you are pushing something with a certain, with an extreme degree of individuality and people won't notice this because it's not a part of, you know, a distribution chain or, you know, people don't have any different motivation to push it. Yeah, it can, be, it can be difficult, but there's not really anything you can do. So I had a good discussion with a a Czech writer that runs one of the big Czech radio stations. And we're his favorite band, and he's part of the radio station. And he said, you're my favorite band, and I love your songs, but I can't get everybody else in the radio station to agree to play therapy. But what can we do? You know, there's, there's not anything we can do. I mean, some bands would panic. And think, oh, we need to maybe make a really wacky video, or we need to maybe start writing songs that will get played in the radio. But to a certain extent, we had a period in the 90s when we did get played in the radio. Um, there's not really any, in, we don't feel compelled to write songs that get that. We will always try our best whenever we talk to people that do the PR for Marshall, we will say what's the best can happen to get radio play. Because we want people to hear the record, not because we want to be famous, but because the more people hear the record, the more countries we can tour, the more um, the record, the more we get out to meet friends and meet new people. But yeah, I mean, we were within, we were very couple Power Cold Fire. We actually got a lot more radio play than we have done in many, many years, which took us by surprise. But that was because we touched on this earlier, Dan. There was people working in radio stations that were therapy fans when they were fourteen but now work at radio stations <laughs> and they 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 haven't played they all of a sudden they're now part of a station that's got the new therapy record they go god i'll give this a spin so we were getting play in a lot of places that we hadn't been played in in years so it's one of those things and it's there's not i think you have to be careful as a band that's been around for over three decades 
how you're perceived because in, in music like ours people can really really sense if you're not being sincere and i think if you try and chase coverage you try and chase pr it's never going to work it has to be organic and we will do everything that we can to make sure that people will hear the record that's the best we can do you know we'll, we always say to our pr people look we know that you're not going to get radio play with certain stations but at least make sure you get if we give you a list make sure that radio station has got the tune and if they turn around and go yeah we don't like those guys or who are these guys or it's not for us fine but if we find out that you haven't given them the track then we'll have a problem <laughs> because you know it's like we're like we're just uh, we we make a record we want lots of people to hear it but if if 20 radio stations get the track and 19 of them go we're not interested then that's that's okay we're not gonna start phoning them up and go you must play us you know but Mm-hmm. But this is where we're very comfortable with the situation. And, you know, that's, I think that's the best way that we deal with it. And that's, that really makes your experience with Joe a bit more interesting because it was really, it was really the projects that took me by surprise. And, you know, I think a lot of the, you know, most of your fans, like nobody expected you to do something like this, even though once again, it was really notable, just like, you know, we had spoken about Kit Levine. I really heard, like, your guitar tone, like, the way you perform and, you know, obviously, you know, your vocal phrasing. So, what it was like for you to work on this project, on the contrary, with, you know, Heart Cold Fire, where you, you know, you, you, like, your expectations weren't really defined by the fact that you already have the fan base and it was basically the ground zero. Yeah, that was that was good actually. I really liked it because it was something um that took my mind and it took my way of writing somewhere different because with the writing of the Joe record, um I would get sent a drum beat mm-hmm. and that would be it. So like Adam Betts would just say I've got this drum beat and that was it. There was no there was no bass line, there was no keyboards, it was just and I would put my headphones on and I would get my guitar. And then I, I knew I wasn't going to play like therapy. The big bits of it will sound like me. But so I was just having fun. And then I went down to the studio for two days and we added, we added some synthesizers. And because we did the vocals on the day, I wasn't sitting at home trying to come up with a really memorable melody that would fit the music the way I would the therapy. I was just going in and and having a bit more free form. And I, and I didn't do all the vocals on the Joe record. I shared that with Wayne. So that was really good as well. But it was uh, it was quite liberating because it, it was, I said to the guys in therapy, actually, you know, we, we did the record. It was done very, very quickly. I think I was in the studio for four days total, two days with vocals, two days with guitar, and that's for eight tracks. Then we went and we did four concerts and we had four, I think four concerts with two days rehearsal. And we played to maybe a hundred people a night in these small venues. And I wasn't in the middle of the stage or for, I was right to one side of the concert hall. And I, all I did for most of the concert was play guitar. Mm. And that was, I, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. It was good fun and there was no pressure. But then again, once I went back to do the first therapy shows after the Jotter, I absolutely really appreciated what I had in therapy. Cause I thought, oh, this is incredible. You know, the first gigs back were outdoor festivals, lots of people, everyone singing all the songs. And it made me appreciate what I have in therapy a lot more. One of the, you know, probably mo- most important, whenever you would release the new therapy records, there still would be talks of people comparing it to well-known works of yours, you know, mm-hmm. first and foremost, Trouble Gum. But yeah. if you are a creator, like you can truly pick any record and say that that's better than this one because obviously for i think for every musician all their works are like children that you can't really take say that this child is better than this one mm-hmm. <laughs> right so, so you know that, uh, to me it's it's really it's really difficult a difficult situation and a dif- and that really causes a lot of artistic conflicts at least that's what I noticed working with artists all the time. That there would be people who would be asking you some questions all the time, no matter like what you would be doing. And it's really sometimes it pushes artists to ask themselves really 
difficult existential questions? Well, it, it can be frustrating, but I think the way I look at it with something like trouble gum with therapy is I'm incredibly grateful that we have a trouble gum. You know, it's like trouble gum is our nevermind, it's our rain and blood, it's our master of puppets. You know, it's our okay computer. It's the one record that if everyone talks to, most bands have got a record. Most most well-known bands have got a record that most people associate them with. And I remember of all people, Lemmy from Motorhead uh, once was asked, do you not get really tired of people always saying about Ace of Spades? He went, well, I'm just glad we have Ace of Spades. <laughs> you know, because there's a lot of bands out there that have played for years that don't have a trouble gum. They've maybe got three or four albums, but none of them ever made an impact on people's lives like Trouble Gum. So it's, it's, um, it can be frustrating when people review it, but I think those people that review it or talk about it like that with modern records, they'll probably listen to Faith No More and go, well, it's not Angel Dust, or they'll probably listen to a Metallica record and go, it's not as good as Master of Puppets. And it's just part of, it's just part of being in a, a band that's had a popular record in the 90s. And I don't mind it. You know, I think... Ironically, if we set out to make a record like Trouble Gum 2, people would probably go, yes, yes, it's going to happen. But it wouldn't It wouldn't have the same thing. Trouble Gum was made by certain people at a certain point in their lives. And that's why it sounds the way it does. And that, that's not something that you can manufacture. And the records that we've made since are all reflections of where we are in our lives now. So I think it's, um, as far as I'm concerned, yes, it can be frustrating. But at the same time, I have to always tell myself that I'm lucky that there is a trouble coming in existence. That, that, that you know, uh, the part of the reason why I'm talking to you now, Dan, is because we made a record called Trouble Gum. <laughs> you know, if that record hadn't have been a success, a lot of people across the world would never have heard of therapy. So it's uh, I'm grateful for it to a certain extent. But yes, I admit it can be frustrating. What we've touched previously, you you mentioned like there are some qualities that really, you know, make make you a specific, like, a Northern Irish bench in a mm -hmm. sense of humor, worldview, which made me really think about James Joyce mm -hmm. to a degree. So, like, where you are right, right now, like, many decades after you've started, and you've started specifically in Northern Ireland, are there any other qualities that make you an Northern Irish band? Because still, like, the local musical climate is really very unique. And I think, like, the fact you, you've started with Warzone Collective, mm. correct me if I'm wrong, it's yeah. really made, a, you know, a certain contribution because every local scene is unique on its own. No, I, I think uh, there's a certain thing in bands from Northern Ireland that exists. Um, especially guitar guitar bands that maybe play agitated and aggressive music, punk or metal especially. There's a history of melody in Ireland itself. You know, the, it's got a rich theme of melody throughout the island. And that you, you can trace it back to bands like Horse Lips in the 70s. Thin Lizzy is a good example. Mm -hmm. Stiff Little Fingers during the punk era wrote some of the most memorable uh, punk songs. The Undertones, everyone knows, are a fantastic pop band. You can go right through the bands I like, Rudy, that were on the Good Vibrations label. Mm -hmm. and then right up now through to um, bands like there's a really good band called Problem Patterns that are um, write incredibly incisive, noisy, noisy songs. And I, their debut album came out on Friday. It's called Blouse Club. Mm -hmm. It sounds like an Albini-produced album when you listen to it. It could be McCluskey. It could be No Means No. It could be Pavement. But beneath all the beneath all the noise of the guitars, there's these gorgeous melodies, these wonderful melodies. And I just thought when I listened to that record on Friday, they could only come from North of Ireland. <laughs> mm -hmm. And what reaction did your Northern Irish fans had when you performed the acoustic version of your material? Um, we only did one show in Dublin with the, uh, we did, we did a few with the band. Yeah. Yeah. They saw the acoustic songs. Yeah. We did one at a show in Belfast once and it went down, it was sold out and it was in an old theater and it was, well, the Irish are very rowdy. I don't know what the term would be very lively. Mm. Whenever we played in, in mainland Europe, Germany, Holland, France, Austria, there would be like almost a solemn quiet in the theater. But when you play in Ireland, that's not going to happen. So like the whole way through the acoustic show, people are shouting and 
and sort of teasing you and stuff like that. And people that I went to school with turned up and started <laughs> shouting at me and stuff. But that, that was what I expected and it was great fun. So in a way that it, it was perfect because it meant that it became like, um, rather than playing a concert too, people it became a bit like sharing, sharing ideas back and forward in one room, which is what made it special. I think one of the beauty of really a rock performance is the fact that you can interpret some of your well-known songs in a different way and they would become, you know, some, something really incredible, which is once again goes to ACDC and maybe Angus Young falling on stage and doing things that he didn't make on the recording. But the mm -hmm. fact that you do all these mistakes that really make a contribution to incredible performance. Yeah, I suppose that's what keeps keeps the music alive. Mm -hmm. You know, I think I think different interpretations. It's a difficult thing to do, but I think if you we see everything that we've done as one one piece, it's a bit like Samuel Beckett used to see everything that he had ever written and performed as one one piece. He said it's just he called it the work. He said it was just all continuous, and I used to find that quite strange when I was younger. But I see what he means now, and I think with therapy, if we revisit old songs. You find things in them that at the time you didn't notice. And sometimes it's good to bring those things to the fore. And recently we were playing in rehearsals. There's an album we did in 1998 called Semi-Detached. Mm -hmm. And we knew it got reissued uh, on Friday there. We knew that we might play some songs from it on a tour. But they were played as a four-piece. So I sat down with my guitar to work out to see if we could play any of these songs as a three-piece. And I'd forgotten a lot of the ideas that we had in guitars, and it was things that were that were that I'd forgotten about. Whenever I was playing them, we were practicing some. We were practicing some of these songs, and because Neil wasn't there when we did the album, I was playing some of these guitar riffs, and he wasn't that familiar with the songs, so he would come in playing his interpretation of the drums, and we were going, "This is really good." You know, we could do a version of this song of semi-detached in this style. Because this is the way the three of us play it now, you know, over like 25 years after the album was released. But it, it keeps the music alive. So like, you know, by us going out and doing acoustic sets or dropping old songs into the set, it means that, you know, it, it gives a relevance to the songs that people will still maybe want to go back and revisit them. I recently discovered, you know, because my friend's band celebrated the 30 years anniversary of the debut record, they, you know, they had put out, produced by Albini, is the mm -hmm. fact that after a certain period of time, like no matter what was the initial reaction, people mm -hmm. would would start appreciating the things based on, you know, on the fact that how many years had passed. And mm -hmm. I think right now is a good example of that is the fact that a lot of the shitty music from, you know, back 20 years before now got released it, it it sort of you know became really popular and the fact that you know 20 years had passed makes people to get back to those things probably due to nostalgia but you know it it, it also happens with the good music so whatever people would get back to their you know old favorites just like i got recently to nurse which is probably one of my all-time favorite records of yours and in my list i really discovered some incredible things i probably didn't notice for over like the first 40 times of listening to that record yeah. wow that's brilliant. brilliant yeah i i, I know what you mean I, I listened to entertainment by gang of four uh -huh. recently and i was surprised at how poppy it was <laughs> I remember as a kid thinking it was like really, really quite a strange and it was it was very abrasive and the guitar was angular and the vocals were just statements shouted. But when I listened to it, it's really melodic and um, the guitar chords are melodic. But I didn't, whenever I was an angry 15-year-old kid, you know, I just thought this is going for, it's exciting, it's dangerous. And, and now I hear it in a completely different way. And I think it's the same with, with therapy is that people can hear stuff like maybe Infernal Love that was released in 1995. That, mm -hmm. To fans of Trouble Gum, a lot of them thought it was terrible or they thought it was a very strange record. But when you go and listen to it now, years later, it's like, okay, right. I, I didn't realize that, you know, that it was like a lot of people didn't realize that there was a kind of avant-garde jazz bit in the first track, you know. Mm. It was like people missed that. They just thought, oh, this isn't Knives of Trouble Gum. So, 
he didn't listen to it further. You've always had a difficult, a difficult story about you know creating of that record, and we all know how much of of a pressure you got going through the creative process. Mm -hmm. How much did you change your attitude? over this work of yours getting through the years? Well, from a personal point of view towards the record, I still can't think about that record because it was difficult to make. But the one thing that has given me um, happiness is what that record means to other people. I mean, over the years, so many people have told me incredible things about how that record saved their lives, about how special that record is to them. Um, about how much, you know, they were going through a difficult time and that record got them through. And at the time, I didn't know. I, all I just knew was that therapy fans worldwide were angry because it wasn't Trouble Gun, the record label, were angry because it didn't sell as well as they thought it would, and the critics didn't like it because it didn't sound like Trouble Gun. And I was going through a tough time myself, so it was a perfect storm of negativity. But what's rescued the record for me is how much it means to other people, and at the end of the day, that's the most important thing. You know, the music that we make is to be shared and to find out that it's had a positive effect on people's life, that, that means more to me than anything.